Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the t- on today's programme in what is a rainy autumn morning here in the capital is Rolf Abweiler. Rolf is a director at the European Bioinformatics Institute headquartered in Cambridge. Um, Rolf, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the programme. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well, Rolf. Um, it isn't the nicest day for it, but fortunately we're inside away from the bad weather, so that's good. Um, normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the topic of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start the discussion from that angle because for leaders within all walks of life, it has proven to be such a significant challenge. But just how was the pandemic for first and foremost, affected you and your operations? Well, of course, it affected us in the same way as as many other uh, people in the country, uh, actually around the world. Uh, we had to completely change our way of um, working, uh, which was for us actually much easier than for many other people. But as you mentioned, we are... Uh, the European Bioinformatics Institute and the clue there is informatics means we do all uh, our work on computers and uh, so it was relatively easy to move everyone uh, to work from home. Uh, We did that already pretty early on, earlier than the general um, strategy in the UK. Uh, We started that quite a bit earlier and we did that in just two days that we moved everyone from um, uh, working in our offices to working from home. And we are an operation of 800 plus people from 60 different countries. Mm. Um, that led then to a few challenges uh, of technical sorts. Uh, how do you get all the equipment uh, to people to work from home? Uh, how do you make sure that they can properly work? At the beginning, we thought it's only for relatively short period means weeks uh, but of course it turned out longer so how to bring them chairs and tables that they can sit properly and work properly uh, how to get into uh, keep in contact how to move everything to video conferencing all the team meetings and so on so that was quite a bit of a challenge uh, but it worked out very well and we are nearly as productive as before Uh, we also had been uh, a change in our work because um, we are providing the research data to the world, um, research data in the, in the life sciences to the world. And uh, of course, research data is very important for COVID research. And so a lot of our new um, efforts went into supporting COVID-19 research. And that took uh, also, a lot of repurposing of our time and our, of our activities into this field, but it works very well. So that's good to hear, of course, that 
when it came to mobilizing people to work remotely and it came to leading them from a distance, it is a challenge that has been sort of a bit of a tricky one, but you've been able to get around that quite well. And um, if we move away from COVID ever so uh, slightly um, and just uh, shift the focus, meanwhile, in the background, while the pandemic has been going on, we've seen the negotiations for a post-Brexit trade deal taking place between the UK and the European Union and ultimately the European Bioinformatics Institute where you work, Rolf, is um, a European organisation. So with Brexit to be fully enacted by the end of the year, when of course we'll be entering the winter and COVID-19 will be peaking once again, what sort of challenges are you expecting around that sort of time? Well, Brexit was for us a huge challenge. Um, uh, as mentioned, we are the European Bioinformatics Institute, part of an international organization called EMBL, the European Molecular Biology Laboratory. Mm. And this is separate from the EU. It's a treaty organization in its own right. And Britain uh, was a founding member of that and is still a staunch supporter of that. We have five uh, sites, EMBL has five sites, uh, six sites in five countries. And um, uh, so legally, there is no change because we have agreements with the British government, all British governments since we moved from uh, uh, to, to the UK with the European Bioinformatics Institute in 1994 were very supportive of us. We have no changes in our relationship with the European Commission. So legally, there's no change. However, of course, it's changed a lot of the appeal uh, for people working at EBI, 60 different nations. Um, they all came there with um, expectations, with uh, seeing Britain as the place where they may stay after their uh, time at EBI. A lot of that is still unclear, um, as, as you know. And the last four years were pr- pretty rocky and keeping everyone in good spirit and, uh, and supporting them was not the easiest of tasks, mm. especially since, as we all know, uh, conditions are still not completely clear how the um, future relationships will work. But uh, we do our best to, to have everyone uh, through that. And um, um, uh, the culmination point will be, of course, the end of the transition period together with um, quite a peak of the pandemic. And it's going to be quite a tricky time, isn't it, particularly with regards to people's mental health and well-being, because these are factors which ultimately are beyond our control at the moment. And safeguarding well-being is one of those very important elements of leadership, isn't it? Not just in terms of looking out for that of your colleagues as a leader, but also your own as well, because even in the everyday environment of running a business or an organisation, it can be quite hectic and quite mentally taxing. But when you are sort of trying to guide your way through a crisis, and indeed perhaps a two-pronged one with two major challenges coming at the end of the year, perhaps, that can be very, very difficult. And sometimes as a leader, you do also have to take a step step back and prioritize your own well-being too. Yeah, that was that was a very important consideration for us during the last uh, months because we we get a lot of people who come from from different countries and very often at a young stage because they come as PhD students and postdocs so they don't have families often with them. And so they need to, to have support. Um, so 
assemble EBI as an organization offers quite excellent health and well-being support, including mental health first aiders and access to a counselor. Um, but we know that it has been very challenging for staff. And particularly, as I mentioned, that we have so many staff who are residing in the UK who have been separated for many months from family in their home countries, as well as from their work colleagues. So we do um, encourage all of our team leaders to keep well in touch and look out for signs that people feel depressed. Uh, we we send uh, encouraging messages rounds to say, look, now that the, the weather changes, the, the clocks have changed, make sure that you take time to get out and do something for your health uh, and reach out to people if you need help. Yeah? But, but it's, we, we, we do what we believe we can do, uh, but we always fear that it's not enough to reach the people who really should be reached. Yeah. We will reach out to, it's easy to reach the ones who are easily reachable, but the ones mm. most in need are the most difficult to reach. And just reflecting on your experience of grappling with these challenges, with the fallout of Brexit and also with the impact of the COVID situation, is there anything over this sort of last few months that you feel you've learned from having to manage these crises in your leadership role? Well, what I learned is that it's so important to uh, step up communications and communications top down and bottom up to the top. So you need to to listen and you need to uh, give information. And you, you need to be consistent in your messaging, but at the same time, you need to be flexible enough to react to changing circumstances. So that that you have like a ship, a relatively clear course, but if you see certain obstacles, you can navigate around them without any wild swings. In this way, you give both security and stability to your staff, but you also show them that you're listening and are ready to change course whenever it's necessary. I think this you're is really not right. something new. Yeah. yeah, this is really not something completely new. Yeah, that, that's in mm. some way common sense. But but it reiterated the importance of, of uh, these common sense and pragmatic approaches. Right. Um, it does. You're absolutely right because communication from the top down and the bottom up is certainly incredibly important in the everyday environment in leadership but you mentioned there as well the importance of being able to adapt quickly to changing guidelines and changing circumstances and we've really sort of seen those demands sort of heaped onto businesses and industry during this particular time because people have had to adapt and to innovate to keep vital services ticking over and being provided so that's very very true and the ability of people, businesses and organisations to do that shows a real resilience. And that is a positive that we can certainly take forward from all of this, isn't it? Well, I think I should also add one thing what I also saw as really important and what works very well at, at EBI was teamwork. Yeah, that mm. There's not a single leader doing things. You're, you're and, and, and ordering uh, certain behaviors it's it's that you get people together to think together and and act together and, and empower people and and move as a 
as a um, as an organization and not uh, just all driven by a single person. Mm. That's worked again very well, and it helps that we are uh, an organization with a lot of uh, turnover. Um, just due to the nature of, of the scientific work and, and of, of certain rules of our organization, so that you constantly build new succession uh, of uh, people in, in, in certain roles, and that you you need always to, to accommodate newcomers and, and new views and so on, and that really helps in in, in um, having this collegiality and and team spirit because uh, everyone knows oh. I'm new here. I need to learn something. I will leave again. Let's all work together that we make the best of our time here uh, for the benefit of everyone. And again, that that was then pretty helpful that we that we work from um, and on all levels very well together and um, saw that as common challenges uh, where we all need to get through uh, and um, uh, together. And that it's really not just one leader. It's the whole organization that should lead together. Mm. Exactly right, uh, because leadership isn't just about one individual. It is about the team of people around them, the collective unit, as you say there. And it's hugely important to remember that. And that togetherness, that unity has been so, so important during this time. And it will continue to be so. And I would like to also talk about the uh, the future as well, Rolf, just before we do wrap things up on the show, because I am conscious that we're beginning to run short of time. Um, it is going to be quite a tricky winter period coming up very soon. We're very aware of that. And of course, given the nature of this uncertain landscape we can't look too far ahead into the future it is difficult to tell what will happen but in an ideal world um what is it that you are hoping to have achieved at the european bioinformatics institute in 12 months time and where do you really want your organization to be by that stage yeah there there are two parts of that one is of course in general i want that we all get through that in a safe and healthy way. That's, of course, the overarching importance. Both healthy in the sense of not getting infected or or, or very ill uh, through SARS-CoV-2, but um, also that we have not too many uh, damages uh, through um, mental health issues uh, in in this depressing times. So that is one thing. But there's another thing where I believe we will really make a difference. And um, the European Bioinformatics Institute, as I mentioned before, we are collect, uh, we are coordinating the collection and integration of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 research data, from the virus sequences to the host genetic data to um, chemical screens uh, of potential drugs um, to, to the literature. All, all kinds of, of uh, data. And we coordinate that uh, together with 40 countries in Europe. Um, and I'm, I'm at the moment yeah, the, the, the leader of, of these efforts. Um, and that's really great because that we see that these 40 European countries are working together uh, to exchange the data and inform each other as good as possible to uh, find very quickly ways to uh, 
develop better therapeutic investments. That's very gratifying, and we are making huge progress. And we also then coordinate that with our colleagues in the Americas and in Asia. That's really great, and I think that this will uh, accelerate the transition of research data into healthcare and for uh, accelerating the flow of information from the healthcare system back into the research uh, area so that we can have a faster life cycle of data flowing um, uh, between these two areas, leading to better health and better uh, situations for the whole um, citizens, uh, for all the citizens in all the countries. I think that's something mm. which, where we are doing an incredible good job. Um, and I'm, I'm very glad that uh, that we were able to rise to this challenge. Uh, but that, I think, would be the topic of a whole other podcast. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And it's a fantastic mission that you're all on, Rolf, and it's incredible work that you have been doing at the um, the EBI. And I think it would be wonderful, actually, to at some point catch up in future once we start to get a better idea of what the global landscape is starting to look like. And we can talk about exactly that and also see how things are getting on behind the scenes as well, because there's still plenty of uh, things that are going to happen in the next few months and things may look very different maybe five to six months from now. I hope better. Hopefully for the better, exactly right. Um, that positivity is certainly infectious. And I think we could all use a real dose of positivity to really boost the morale at this point in time as well, because it is easy to get sucked into the doom and gloom of things. And positivity is so, so, so important. Um, Rolf, I have to say... Yes, it's absolutely. Been, yes, I've got to say it's been no, absolutely. such a pleasure. Can I, can I say one? Yes, of course. Can I just say, mm-hmm. I think I, I just want to praise once again the reaction of the whole scientific community, which really gives more than a glimmer of hope. The whole world, the whole scientific world is working very, very well together. And without that, we wouldn't have made so much uh, progress in knowing uh, already now how to do some improvements in treatment, in diagnosis, in, in pathogen surveillance, and so on. So there is, there is hope, although mm-hmm. we are still n- not out of the tunnel, but... Uh, we know at least that there will be an end of the tunnel. We do, exactly right. The light is getting closer. We just have to keep going. And I think you're very right. The scientific community needs all the praise um, in the world and all of the encouragement. And its work is so, so vital. And I'm sure it will carry on doing that um, to the utmost effect. Rolf, I have to say, it's been such a pleasure actually welcoming you onto the uh, the programme today. And it's been really insightful and enlightening at the same time. Um, and most importantly, until we do hopefully get an opportunity to speak again in future, please do also take care and stay safe with all that is still going on. Yeah, and same for you. It was a pleasure for me to, to, uh, to be on the programme. And uh, please stay also safe and healthy. And that also goes for all of our listeners that are tuning into today's episode as well. Please do continue to be sensible and stay safe and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make a real difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Rolf Apweiler, Director at the European Bioinformatics Institute, onto today's programme. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent 
current Leaders' Council chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed the opportunity to catch up with him. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up 
inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react. uh, And Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.